Welcome back to another episode of Power to Become, the podcast. We have a very special guest today, Amy Antonelli. You went to school here on this campus. Yeah, I did. And I think that was like in the 90s, is that correct? <laughs> yeah, like 100 years ago. <laughs> no, well, um, I came here in 1992 and I was here until 1994. Okay, awesome. So you got your associates there? Uh-huh. Awesome. And where did you go from there? So I went to Provo, to BYU-Idaho. I mean, to BYU-Provo. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And um, and spent another like year and a half in, in Provo and then went on my mission. Um, and then came back and did another year at BYU-Provo before I finished. Okay, awesome. So, um, so where did you serve your mission? I served in Italy. Oh, cool. And I served the other half of my mission in Malta. It's this little tiny country off the coast of Italy. Okay, cool. I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's awesome. Did you, I don't even know if this was like a time where people were coming from Africa, but did you ever meet Ghanaians in your mission? In um, Africa, there. I mean, in Malta, there were some, but um, it, it really wasn't, there weren't very many people that were Malta in Malta who were not Maltese people. Mm, okay. It was an interesting place. They speak like a, an Arabic dialect. In oh, there. really? Yeah. And so we, we got to learn a, a whole new language that no one else on earth speaks. <laughs> so, <laughs> but funny. it was a lot of fun. My companion and I were the first sister missionaries to go into that country. Really? Yeah, That's it was, awesome. It was really fun. We had, to, it was like, you know, figuring out the mission from scratch in some ways. Really though? <laughs> we were just, we didn't have a book or any kind of investigators. We just had to kind of like go in blind just but walk in talk to people the Maltese people were so great that's They're awesome really, really special people did yeah. you open that area or did you just no there were elders that had been okay. there before but we were the first sisters that had ever been okay there, so. that's really interesting yeah um what was the best part of those people because you said they were just yeah. awesome so because Malta has been such it has such a fascinating history um the people have been really insulated. I mean, there's a really strong belief about Paul being shipwrecked on Malta and, you know, oh, yeah. when he got bit yeah. by the snake and everything. And so there's deep, deeply Catholic. Um, but that means that they deeply believe in Christ. And so there was a common foundation that was so easy to build on with the, the people because they were just good people and they had been raised to believe and to have faith. That's really powerful. Yeah, they That's were special. Awesome. Our church was on, um, our church, which was like a little house, was on a street called Hope Street. Oh, awesome. Yeah, which I thought was so perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. Um, so going back to when you were in school, you went from BYU-Idaho, which I guess was Rick's College at the time. It was Rick's College. Yeah, and then you went to BYU, and you also went to Harvard. I mean, later, yeah. but... What was the differences between all three schools? Yeah, really, really different experiences. Um, and I think it's interesting that, f for me at least, I think the Lord has put me in exactly the right school at the exact right time in my personal development that I needed to be at each of those places. So I actually wouldn't necessarily say that one is better than the others because all three of them were so unique and so different. I don't think that I would have loved BYU Provo nearly as much as I did mm -hmm. if I hadn't started at Ricks College because Ricks College at the time was perfect for me. It was like I came out of, you know, the suburbs in Virginia and for me these these wide open spaces and like the farmers when they, you know, drive by and just say hello to you. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what is happening? It was so new for me. Yeah. But I fell in love with it. I mean, it was this it was so wide open that it just felt like I could become 
anything I wanted here. And so it was a place I feel like I really started to understand who God is and who I could become in the light of the restored gospel. Um, so Rexburg for me is really sacred. I think it's, um, it's really not like any other place on earth. BYU you, Provo was a way bigger and busier. And, yeah, you definitely. Know, and that was fun for me too, but I wouldn't have done nearly as well as I did there if I hadn't had that foundation first in Rexburg. So. That's, that's really that's really interesting. Because yeah. I grew up here, just outside of Rexburg, uh-huh. and I never thought about that. I mean, I go out my front door and I could see for miles and totally. miles until you could even see the mountains. Yeah. And... I feel like I've had that same experience. Yeah. Where, without realizing it, though, I just came, and even though I'm from here, I allowed myself to just kind of pick my path to where I want to be. Totally. My relationship with God, where I stand in my beliefs, and even to the, like the education part, like I've really formed who I want to be when I grow up. That's so cool. I love to hear that. It's fun to hear that that's still happening now, even 20 yeah. years later. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so yeah, um, but yeah, Harvard. Yeah, so Harvard was diff- Harvard was way different, um, obviously, than BYU or Rexburg. Um, I loved my time at Harvard. I, um, I I think that deep down inside of me, there's something that really resonates with tradition. And for me, you know, just getting up in the mornings and rowing on the Charles River and being able to study in the same libraries that John Adams studied in and really just walking through the gates that you knew that so many people who were foundational to our country had had walked through was just inspiring to me. It just made me feel like I couldn't take one single day that I had there for granted because um, it's such a special place. And even now, all the most of the people that I met when I was there, they just inspire you to become better. The, the level of rigor that is required and expected is um, substantial. And so across the board, you just have to be on your game every day. Yeah. Um, but that's what I loved. I mean, I don't know if I could have sustained that level of rigor forever. But man, while I was there, I just I didn't have one drop of energy left when I was done. <laughs> because every single moment that I was there, I really took I really feel like I soaked it up. And I will always love Harvard. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> what made you decide you wanted to go there? You know, it's funny. I was just, I was actually just speaking to a class. I I never in a million years when I was at Ricks College would have ever thought that I would go to Harvard. I wouldn't have ever even considered it. I didn't even feel like I wanted to go to grad school at the time. Mm-hmm. I just I wanted to be a mother and I wanted to stay home and raise children and that was what my goal was. And I mean, still to this day, I think that is like such a beautiful goal, mm-hmm. but that hasn't been my experience. And, um, and as I kind of progressed through my career, I started to realize something really fundamental about myself. And that is that I really like to build things more than I like to run them. Mm. I'm really good at building stuff. I'm scrappy and I can like <laughs> figure things out and we can blow things up. Um, but once it comes to running them, then I get a little bit bored. And so I decided after seven years of building a nonprofit in India that I wanted to go back to graduate school and really understand how the best people in the world had built the best organizations so that as I continued to try and build other things that I had a foundation upon which to do that based on a substantial amount of study and research and understanding. 
That's that's so cool. Thanks. Um, and you mentioned something I really wanted to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> You're the nonprofit in India. Totally. So start from the beginning. Let's how did just, I end up in India? Yeah. How like did most that happen? people end up in leprosy colonies? <laughs> no. Um, yeah, it was interesting. I was I was at Apple and I was working um, for Steve Jobs as one of his spokeswomen. And it was right, it was like 2002, 2003, right when the internet was kind of blowing up and Silicon Valley was like the epicenter of the universe. Mm-hmm. I mean, being at Apple, Steve had just come back after he'd been fired and he was he was so sure that we were about to, you know, just change the world with Apple. And we were about to release the first iPod and everybody was on fire yeah. with it. And it was an exciting time to be there. But I was really conflicted because... I was living in Palo Alto and there was so much money and so much energy and so much excitement. And I was driving this white convertible and I was working for Steve Jobs and I just felt like, you know, like on top of the world. Everybody, <laughs> yeah, everybody would look at my life and just think it was so perfect. But I had this conflicting feeling, which was like, I actually don't really want to do this. I want to be a stay at home mother. Yeah. And I, in my mind, I could only see option A or option B. Like, and I, I didn't have the option of being a stay at home mother at the time. And, And so option B felt wrong. Um, And unfortunately, I wasn't mature enough yet to recognize that Heavenly Father just might be doing things in my life that I didn't quite understand at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, But but I also realized that whenever I feel this sense of kind of discomfort, that usually that's a sign that there's something else that I'm not seeing that I'm supposed to do. So in 2004, the tsunami hit India and... I went over there to see what we could do to help with some family friends. And while I was there, I ended up going to a leprosy colony. I knew nothing about India. I knew nothing about leprosy. But um, the first time I went to this colony, um, I got out of the car and I looked around and all I wanted to do was get back in the car. It was disgusting. Really? Yeah, Mark. I get, it's hard for me to explain how bad it was because people, most people have seen poverty in, it, in, in its heartbreaking form. But leprosy is a whole nother level, whole other level. <laughs> I feel like, um, I mean, at that point, uh, when I got out of the car, I saw people on the ground with open wounds and there was, you know, human excrement all over the place and flies and just s- the smell. I mean, it was, it was like a horrifying experience to see mm. that, you know, and I just wanted to leave. But I had this moment where I was getting back in the car and I turned and I saw this woman and she was sitting against a tree. She was tiny, tiny woman and she didn't really have hands anymore. So her, her fingers were sort of curled up into kind of a claw. Um, but she looked at me and I looked back at her and like in that moment, I just, I saw a woman, you know, that was just like me that just for an accident of birth, she'd been born there and I was born here, but that was the only difference. And we just kind of looked at each other and all of a sudden all that other stuff was gone because I just saw a human being that was in front of me. And so I went over and started talking to her and she was telling me about her experience in India. Um, for a long time, they've believed that if you contract leprosy, that it's because you're being cursed by God, that mm-hmm. you know, you're being punished for something that you did in a previous life that you can't remember. And so it's your fault. And as a result, the people, the leprosy affected people in India have just been treated Awfully. Yeah. Up until a few years ago, it was actually legal to kill a person with leprosy if their shadow crossed yours. Really? Yeah, because they 
people were so afraid of the disease and and looked at it as such an awful, dirty thing that when you contracted leprosy, essentially your life was over. You had no other option except to become a beggar on the street. So Sorrel was telling me this story. And at one point, I just put my arm, I reached out my hand and like touched her on her shoulder. And she, I'll just, I'll never forget her reaction. I mean, it was like visceral. She was so shocked that someone had touched her because she was considered untouchable. And um, the fact that somebody could feel that way about themselves to the point where just a simple human touch meant so much to them was life-changing for me because I realized in that moment that maybe there was a plan C and maybe that this desire I had to nurture and love and take care of people could be accomplished in a different way than I thought, but also while I had a career. And so I went home and I quit my job and I moved to India. <laughs> and I, I Not lived, even like work from yeah. the resident move to India. <laughs> no, I moved to India and I spent the next seven years living in India building this nonprofit organization called Rising Star Outreach um, that helps the leprosy-affected patients. So it's a whole story. The story of Rising Star Outreach is you could do a whole podcast just on that <laughs> and the woman that started it and the miracles that happened there. But really, it's it was one of the great gifts of my life. That so. is so awesome. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you were there for how many years? Seven years. Seven I lived, years. Yeah, I, I actually lived in India for four years, and then I went back and forth from the United States okay. back in India for the next three. Okay. And so at the end of your time there, you what, what happened after that? Yeah, so that's when I decided that I wanted to go back to school. And so okay. I, I applied for for graduate school and went to went to Harvard from there. Okay. So awesome. And then yeah. after Harvard, what was your next step? Yeah. So then, um, when I was getting ready to graduate from Harvard, I had a friend who was working at Facebook at the time, um, and she, she was explaining to me that Mark Zuckerberg was feeling a little bit frustrated because he had essentially built Facebook. You know, I mean, in the in the usual startup way, right? The mm. guy had an air mattress that he was sleeping yeah. on in Palo Alto, <laughs> and that's how he did it. And and then Facebook blew up and it was just, I don't know, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to do an internship or something at one of these Silicon Valley companies, but it is insane. I mean, the kind of stuff that they throw at you, I mean, <laughs> they would do my dry cleaning for free, my laundry for free. They There were seven restaurants on campus with all organic food, breakfast, lunch, dinner, all free. There's a gym with personal trainers that, I mean, it they would pay you a salary and you couldn't figure out what to spend your salary on because they gave you, <laughs> everything. They gave you everything. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, but at the same time you would still hear people complain. I mean, and still hear people asking for more. And I think Mark, I mean, Mark, this is what I heard. He never said this to me, but I, I imagine he got to a point where he felt a little bit like, are you, are you serious right now? Like <laughs> I slept on an air mattress and you're complaining because the valet's not parking your car fast enough, you know? Yeah. Um, and so anyway, so, so they went looking for somebody to help the people who worked at Facebook to feel more connected to the mission. Mark's purpose in blowing Facebook up was originally and still remains to this day, um, that he wants it to be a catalyst for good. Like, he believes that if we can connect every single person on earth, that the two-thirds of the world that don't have access to health care and finance and education can be served just because we start to see each other, like the way I saw that woman in the leprosy mm -hmm. colonies yeah. that day. That you can't tell stories about other cultures when 
I'm friends with you and I and you're a human being instead of just a member of that culture. You can't dismiss it that easily. Yeah. And so he he hired me to come into Facebook to help create a more mission-driven internal community. That's really cool. Yeah, it was a, such a fun job. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, and then from Facebook. Yeah. So for, so it was an interesting experience at Facebook. I um, I had to interview with fifteen people to get that job. Holy cow! Yep. The last two interviews were Cheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg. Nice. And um, so I started. Get, I got going on this project because. And it was really fun because Mark was so excited about it. And so I could literally pick up the phone and call anybody in the country that was, you know, studying like how to make mission driven cultures or how to make meaning at work. And I could just ask them if they would come talk with us. And so we had people like Greg McEwen and Simon Sinek and all these people coming to Facebook to talk to us because Mark Zuckerberg was the one that was asking, you know. Yeah. (laughs) And so um, I really got to know a lot of amazing people during that experience. and it was really fun. And Mark was getting excited about the work we were doing. And so then I kept getting invited to go to different teams and to speak. And it was like a really kind of fun and exciting time. And then um, I had gotten in the habit at Harvard of recording my classes so that I could go back and listen to them afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one day when I had a meeting with Mark and Cheryl and several of the other of the Facebook executives and I was presenting in that meeting, and so I recorded it because I wanted to be able to go back and, and look at it later. Um, well, the next day, the secretary of a vice president asked me a question about the meeting, and um, I told her that I didn't remember, but that I had recorded this meeting, and so we could go back and check. And within three hours, I had been fired, like walked out the door. Because in California, it's absolutely illegal to record anyone without telling them. In particular, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg. I mean, it was like the stupidest mistake I've ever made in my life. Oh, wow. If I'd thought through it, obviously that's not something that I could, I should have done ever. Yeah. But I do take comfort in the fact that it was like a completely innocent mistake. You know, I was just trying yeah. to do my job better and that's what I did. But anyway, it was this like completely shocking turn in my career because I, up until then, things have been going pretty well, you know, and I thought that I was so important and exciting because I had this cool job at Facebook. And I remember I got fired, and the first thing I thought was, I cannot believe I just got fired. I bet. <laughs> and the second thing was, I have to speak at the first ever Power to Become conference in three weeks. Oh, what yeah. What am I going to say to these students? <laughs> because I was supposed to be this like paragon of success, and all of a sudden I, was, I had been fired. And so I wrote, I wrote the talk probably 20 times. And every time I wrote it, I would like, write around what had happened and try to, you know, give all these like tools for success or whatever, you know, but none of it was true because I didn't talk about what had actually just happened. And so my best friend had a prompting to come um, and be with me that weekend. And so she got on a plane, left her kids, came on, came to to spend the weekend with me. And the night before the conference at two o'clock in the morning, I rewrote the talk. And I started out that talk with, um, by saying, Imagine you woke up on the morning of your 40th birthday with no spouse and no children, having just been fired from a great job at Facebook, and you had to speak to thousands of students on how to find the purpose of life. (laughs) (laughs) But what was interesting about that, that not that many people know, is that because I'd written that talk at 2 o'clock in the morning, I didn't have time to memorize it. Mm. And Power to Become is a TED-style conference, Yeah, you're just walking around stage. Yeah, and so I didn't have time to 
to memorize it. And so my best friend sat in the side of the stage and I put my hair over my ear and a Bluetooth speaker in my ear. And she read me that talk as I gave it in the microphone (laughs) to the students in that audience. So it's a really interesting talk because my, um, my actual cadence is actually fairly fast. Yeah. And, um, the way that Tiffany speaks is a lot more slow and thoughtful and methodical. But I think it was really a huge blessing because in that moment, what I was talking about was so vulnerable and so scary for me that I think it needed to be quiet. And I think it needed to have that kind of a pace. And, you know, it's interesting. Five years later, I still get letters all the time from students that heard that talk, talking about like how failure and owning that these awful things happen was so impactful for them because sometimes I think we see people and you just hear all the successes of their story, but they, you don't hear all the big failures. And that for me was huge. I didn't know what was coming next five years ago. So all I could do was go out on that stage and say, I don't know what's next, but I, I do know this, that, that finding our purpose is, is never a one-time event. It's, it's literally the work of our lives. We do it over and over and over as we become the men and women we were created to become. And that was all I could say in that moment because five years ago, I had no idea what God had in mind for me next. Yeah, that, I'm just like, wow, <laughs> that is so crazy. It's and, a pretty great story, isn't and, it? And we even have your, your best friend here, which is awesome. <laughs> she came again to support me. She's She's been my best friend since we were 13, I think. Wow. Once in a while, God just puts miracles in your life, and she's <laughs> one of them. <laughs> that is so awesome. Yeah. Um. So that next step is where you're at now. Yeah. So let's talk about yeah, H-E-F-Y. Totally. Yeah. So a while after I gave that talk, I got a, I got a phone call from um, a guy named Glenn Bingham. And um, he was a, a dad, and he and his wife had sort of faced a challenge 20 years earlier where um, their teenage son had come to them and given them a list of cars that he would be willing to drive. <laughs> and Glenn said he looked at that list and just thought he had failed as a father. <laughs> but his Glenn thought, you know, I think that we need to give our, our kids a, a broader perspective on what, how the world really works. And so... That summer, he took his son to Brazil, where Glenn had served his mission, and they worked um, with street kids to kind of help to build a center for them. And that experience was so impactful for Glenn's son that it totally changed him entirely, came back, turned his life around, ended up going on a mission to the Philippines, and just really became one of the foundational parts of of HEFY. I'm going to call it HEFY. So Heffy? Oh, okay. He became one of the foundational parts of, of Heffy. Um, it, it, it was never meant to be a nonprofit organization. Um, people, Glenn and Elizabeth's friends, just sort of the next summer saw what an impact it had had on, on their kids, and they wanted the Binghams to, to then start to grow it. And so the Binghams, for years, just ran all these trips by themselves and just tried to take as many kids as they could all over the world to do service. But it kind of organically started to grow. And then, you know, summer after summer after summer, more and more and more kids wanted to do this um, to the point where they thought, well, we better make this into a, a nonprofit organization. Yeah. And so they, they, they called it humanitarian experience for youth. 
Um, and then slowly, all over the world, internationally, people just started to call it by its acronym, which is HEFI. Okay. And that's what it's kind of become known for. Um, and then about four years ago, they had so many kids on the waiting list that wanted to come and do these trips that they thought that it was time to scale it. And so they went looking for somebody who knew how to do that. And all of a sudden, all of my background, you know, with like Rising Star and with Facebook and learning how to do that startup at Apple and everything that I had learned, all of a sudden it made sense because I saw this opportunity where there were thousands of teenagers who wanted to go and do good and I could figure out a way to make that happen for them. And so they, when they called me, they found me in our alumni database. Oh, yeah. yeah they called me and, um, and asked me if I would come and be the CEO and if I would scale the organization. Um, and so I did. So over the last four years, HFY has grown by 300%. Um, Heffy has grown by 300%. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Over the last, so over the last four years, Heffy has grown by 300%. This summer we'll have almost 4,000 kids going out to 40 global locations all over the world. It's just, and it's become this, you know, this multi-million dollar international nonprofit organization. And, um, and it's one of the, one of the greatest experiences that I've ever had. Um, our tagline is there will be miracles because we see them over and over every summer. And it's, um, it's just the most incredible thing to watch these kids go out on these trips and through service and through love, start to understand who they really are and who they were made to become because of what they're experiencing in the hardest, you know, hottest summers of their yeah. lives. <laughs> um, I, I lost about a million dollars when I was fired from Facebook in stock. Wow. And I, I think that for a lot of people that would have probably been like a death blow for their career. But honestly, Marco, if you, if you, if in retrospect, you would, God would have given me a choice. I think I would have paid a lot more than a million dollars to have experienced what I've experienced the last few years with Heffy and with these kids all over the world. That, it's, yeah. It's been wow. a miracle for me. Wow. I think that's once, a, <laughs> I think once a in a while. Story. Yeah. I think God just kind of, I think as long as we're trying to do our best to hold on to him, I think once in a while he will move us if he knows we're not going to move ourselves. Most of the time, I think he leaves it up to us to make those decisions. And most of my career, I think, have, has happened because I've just jumped. <laughs> but getting fired for Facebook in such a bizarre way, I think, was God's way of saying that I, he had something else for me to do. And I'm really grateful that it happened. It's one of those things that in retrospect, I can look back on and, and, and say thank you for. That, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just so awesome. Thank you. Um, I'm so excited to hear your talk tomorrow night at Power to Become. So that'll be good. I mean, for people listening to this, it'll have been out for a month or a couple months, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's going to be so awesome. Well, thank you. I hope yeah. so. I hope Will you say a prayer for me? <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'm serious. I, I really hope that what I say will be useful to the students and in, in the things that they're going through right now, too. You know, all yeah. of us are going sort of on our own journeys. So. I think it's kind of fun to hear from other people and just hear how Heavenly Father kind of customizes the c curriculum for each one of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Mom. And yeah. It was a real honor. I appreciate it. <laughs> I'll talk to you again. Maybe in five years, I'll come back and tell you the next chapter of my story. Yeah, for sure. <laughs>